Hello and welcome to a special conference episode of Assessment Works, our podcast through AALHE. We've revamped our usual segments to highlight the offerings at this year's AALHE annual assessment conference held virtually this year from June 7th through 10th. In our Cool Things segment, we'll talk about a session each of us is particularly looking forward to. Our interview for this episode features Kate McConnell of AACNU. She's one of the keynote speakers for our conference. And in our upcoming event segment, we'll highlight sessions being given by friends of the podcast. That's all for now. Enjoy the show. Why don't you start off our cool things at this time? What session are you most looking forward to for this year's conference? So one that stuck out to me is one called Failing Quickly and Thinking Deeply, Using the TRIZ Exercise as a Tool to Improve Institutional Assessment Culture. This is a skills development session, and it's being given by Constance Tucker and Kristen Moreno. And it just looked really interesting. I had to look up what TRIZ is, is in the session description, and it's a method from a Russian engineering design. And it the English translation of it is Theory of Inventive Problem Solving. And it looks like in the skills development session, we'll be going through a number of disruptive thinking challenges and use those to apply those thinkings to creating an institutional culture of assessment. And it just sounded really interesting. It's going to be different than your normal conference session. It, it sounds like it'll be fun and also also useful. So I can't wait to attend that one. It's going to be on June 10th at 10 a.m. Central Time. How about you, Andre? What session can't you wait for? Well, I'm going to say that I'm looking forward to all of the sessions, but it's an impossibility for me to be able to attend all of them. So I am going to highlight our coffee sessions, which every day of the conference, we're going to be opening up with a coffee session at 10 a.m. Central Time. At these, you can bring your own beverage, coffee, I would expect, or water or tea or uh, yerba mate, whatever you drink in the morning. It's going to be in an unstructured meet and greet session where people will share, ask questions, learn about the the app that we're using, discuss what you want or need to know at the conference, how to begin conference networking. It will get you conference networking. I'm looking forward to getting to just know some new attendees, new ALHE members, and it should be really fun. I'm going to be at as many of these as I possibly can. So I look forward to seeing you at the one of the morning coffee sessions. I think the coffee sessions are really cool because I think we've all been to a lot of virtual conferences in the last year or so, and they can be a little stagnant or they can not have that kind of communication that you're looking forward to in live in-person conferences. And it's not exactly the same as an in-person conference, but I've been poking around in the conference space a bit, and it really does seem built to optimize those kind of interactions that I've been missing out on in this past year. So I'll definitely see you in some coffee sessions, Andre. Awesome. All right. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for joining us. 
Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we understand that you're just starting a new position at ACNU. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see your work evolving and where you're hoping to take the organization in this new role? Sure. Well, uh, those of you who are listening probably know my predecessor, my boss, my friend, my mentor, Terry Rhodes, quite well. So the really exciting part is continuing the legacy of good work that he started over his you know, 15 plus years at AACNU. We have changed things up just slightly. In terms of the name of the office, for example, we thought it could use a refresher to more fully encapsulate the work that we focus on in my office So uh, we went from quality curriculum and assessment to the Office for Curricular and Pedagogical Innovation. We really are trying to situate the efforts that we uh, expend on assessment, which is really focused on direct assessment of student learning through the VALUE, uh, Valid Assessment of Learning in Undergraduate Education Initiative. And, you know, part of that is just really making sure people see the connective tissues between the assessment work that we advocate and actual teaching and learning. And so to that end, I think the name was more inclusive uh, and it also gave us some logical space for the other areas of work that we focus on, things like e-portfolios. My wonderful colleague, Dr. Eddie Watson, That's in his wheelhouse in terms of pushing ePortfolio from a a scholarly perspective with the International Journal of ePortfolio, as well as our institutes and forums on that, where we help campuses pragmatically implement it as the 11th high impact practice. And a new direction, or I'll, I'll say a newer concentrated direction that we're going in under that kind of broader rubric of pedagogical innovation is in the area of open educational resources or OER. We have our inaugural institute on OER this summer. Unlike some of our traditional institutes, we've built this one to be virtual, not not just in COVID, but uh, in perpetuity, that it's a year-long experience. So stretching it out beyond the concentrated four-day summer institutes that we do on things like gen ed and assessment. And and working with campuses really to help their students and their faculty leverage resources with an eye towards affordability and issues of quality and equity. So uh, you'll see a lot of the traditional stuff. Value is still there. It's near and dear to our hearts, and it's infused in a lot of these other efforts. But you know, you want to stay up with the times and, and follow the campuses where where they're going and give them the resources they need. And those are the areas that we feel now are ripe for some attention from us uh, in, a, in a more strategic kind of deliberative way. That's really cool. The value rubrics are always one of my first go-to resources. Whenever I'm creating oh, an assessment tool, yeah. I, always, I always go see what's there. And I like that they're faculty created and they're usually a really great place to start. Do you have a favorite value rubric? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> or is you know, that like choosing between your children? <laughs> you know, I'm a parent of an only child, so I get to say, of course I have a favorite. You know, it's funny, I'll tell you. So I was actually on one of the development teams and I worked on inquiry and analysis. And I actually think that's, it's it's an underutilized rubric. I think part of it is we don't frame our gen ed outcomes in that language necessarily, but I think it's a, a really elegant rubric, particularly for like student undergraduate research projects. So I 
you know, having had a little bit of skin in the game and creating that one. But I'll tell you, my favorite one is actually lifelong learning. And when I was at Virginia Tech and we were talking about our first quality enhancement plan, our QAP, that was one that when they first came out, a lot of the committee resonated towards looking at it. But we also recognized kind of the logical fallacy of saying, okay, we're going to assess a first year experience in fall of a first year. So the student's first 16 weeks, let's use lifelong learning. You know, so we kind of laughed about that a little bit, but what I love about it, and this is where my educational psychology bias comes in, is when you read it, it's all about metacognition, self-regulation, transfer, being an independent learner. So it's one that just speaks to me from kind of my disciplinary home, as well as what hopefully, I, I hope we all truly are aiming for when it comes to uh, undergraduate education. So uh, perhaps a little tricky to say you're measuring lifelong learning, you know, with an 18 year old, if you're talking traditional age students or first year, whatever academic program you're in, but, but that one has my heart a bit. Is that the one that has curiosity as one of the criteria? Yeah. Yeah. We're redesigning our core curriculum and we're, the whole thing is kind of based around the integrative learning value frameworks. Yep. Um, But we were, we were in a meeting yesterday where we were discussing our first year experience program and the lifelong learning one and the inquiry analysis ones were were our starting point for for that experience. Oh, exciting. That's funny, but those are your two that you've been involved with the most. Yes, I'm making sure that I'm I'm not incorrect. Nope. Curiosity, initiative, independence, transfer, and reflection. That's all lifelong learning. So that that just you know hits the the high notes for me. Um, but integrative learning is another favorite. You know, I think what's trickier about some of these rubrics is that they they represent the values we espouse and outcomes we're aiming for. But very rarely, you know, even those of us in education fields, very rarely were we trained on how to create assignments or pedagogical strategies to do everything that these rubrics encapsulate. You know, integrative learning, there's a lot of moving pieces there. Same with all of the rubrics, but, you know, particularly those that kind of fall outside the the usual suspects, so to speak. So I I think they're great conversation starters with faculty, even if they end up not being necessarily the way you choose to articulate an outcome and just get folks to think more broadly about to what end they're engaging in this work with students. So I love I love that as as a resource, they're designed almost to be remixed and and reimagined and put into context so often people will create a resource and say this is the resource but I, I think there there's a there's a flexibility built into the idea of the value rubrics which is which is really nice being able to bring it into your own context well I'm so glad that resonates I mean that's certainly what resonated for me about them when I was on a campus right that we could take them and make them our own and contextualize them and there's certainly There's good reasons for some of them to use them as is, particularly if you're looking to benchmark with some of the research we do and the data that we have, you know, but at the same time, one of the more popular workshops I do is, you know, value rubrics 101, when and how to hack them, you know, so what are the different strategies for making them your own and and really honestly, my only rule of thumb, my only, you know, absolutely don't do this is don't do something that's going to put a ceiling on your students potential performance. You know, I've had folks at community colleges say, well, should we cut off the rubric at two because we're only a two-year school? I'm like, absolutely not. We have national data that says your students are exceeding those expectations on many of our outcomes. 
you know, that sort of thing. So as long as you're not truncating the potential of having your students blow you away on what they're doing uh, with their work, I say, you know, go for it, make them your own, make them work. So what would it look like to truncate using the rubrics? Could you, could, could you think about what that might look like? Would that be like having fewer, fewer criteria? Like I, I know sometimes there are three criterion rubrics and that middle row of the rubric will become like a dumping ground. Yeah, so so it's interesting because I'm I actually don't have um, real strong opinions on whether or not you shrink the scale or expand the scale a little bit. To be perfectly honest, you know, actually when I was at Virginia Tech, that's what we did with that middle column because it was kind of that murky middle. We were having a hard time determining difference between two and three. And I would say that for the purposes that it was being used, those broad patterns of kind of trajectory over time for three, three articulated levels, you know, was still the, the possibility of a zero made sense. Um, my favorite story there is when I had faculty give feedback that they didn't like the labels across the top, you know, which say right now, benchmark, milestone, capstone. I had colleagues at, at Virginia Tech who said it sounded too liberal artsy. You know, someone was like, oh, that sounds like William and Mary. So they landed on novice practitioner expert, right? So I I think you can play with the scale. I've seen places where, you know, maybe they recognize that in a particular initiative, they're only actually, you know, we have five or six dimensions. Maybe they're really only hitting three or four. And that's fine. That's what they're intending to do pedagogically. It makes sense. For me, truncating where, again, where you say, you know what? we're only going to anticipate our students hitting a two, or we're only going to set things up where, you know, they might hit a three, so to speak. Mm. You know, I say use the full range on all your students, use it with Mm. your first years, with your seniors, two-year institutions, four-year institutions, because students are, are bringing lots of different things to bear. You know, the learning isn't limited to what you might be looking at in the context of one class and one program and one assignment. Like, let them have some, some space to demonstrate what they've, what they've got there. But, you know, we've had lots of places come up with what they, folks have come to me and you actually use the language of Frankenstein rubrics. Where they say, well, we took two over here, we took two from here, and we smushed them together and then came up with one row of our own. And, you know... That's great. We have no problem with that either. So it, it has to align with your curriculum and make sense for your culture and context. So AACNU is always working to position the value of a liberal arts education in terms of readying students for what they can do after college. Mm-hmm. And there's a cool new report from AACNU, uh, How College Contributes to Workforce Success. Yeah. So what were some of the things that stuck out to you from this report? Oh, let me see. Well, first, like a ton of credit goes to Ashley Finley, uh, another familiar name in the assessment space. She really spearheaded the analysis uh, and the writing of that report with our folks, our collaborators at Hanover Research. One of the things that I find interesting in that report is that it confirms the value of a broad liberal education. And, you know, so we think of this as, you know, both depth and breadth, so major general education, the experiences outside of the classroom, those things really matter. And consistently over time, we're seeing employers telling us that, you know, yes, college is still 
uh, a good value proposition. What I would say is unique to this particular report that was fascinating that we didn't necessarily expect to see. Uh, and I'll just give a teaser of it. The report's available for free. You can download it. Were some of the differences when it looked when we looked at employers by age. So those under 40 and those I think over 50, there were some significant differences there in terms of priorities or what attachments employers were saying they had to certain things like, like the idea of being civically engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, the younger employers were seeing that as part of not just the you know, value of an experience within college, but something that contributed to the workforce, you know, and employability later on. So there's other nuances there around that issue that might be interesting. The other piece that's new in this survey, and actually there'll be a a follow-up survey coming out soon. Well, I guess I shouldn't call it a follow-up, not with employers, but a, a survey we did of higher ed institutions with very similar questions where we actually started interrogating the idea of what right now, what we're calling uh, mindsets or dispositions. So things like self-confidence, sense of belonging, well-being, work ethic, those kinds of things. And you're seeing that employers are ranking those equally as high as the essential learning outcomes when it comes to what they're hoping graduates bring to the table. And, you know, we're interrogating that same uh, list of attributes with the higher ed respondents, the faculty, the deans, department heads, academic leaders. So I'd say those are kind of the newer things within that report. You know, and it's a report that has history. They've been doing this at AACNU for yeah. uh, a good while now. I want to say the first one was 07, 08. You know, certainly 2013 was the first one I worked with. You know, you, you, you'd want to check my dates on that. But there's, there's good trend data over time, which is exciting to see. Yeah, I definitely always look for those. And I noticed the same thing about civic, civic engagement in the report. So it's, it's good that you pulled that out. The other thing I noticed was it seems like the digital literacy competency was something that's more important to employers as well. And I can't remember how the, the different age groups rated digital literacy, but I know that that's one thing that's coming out. More people are, are incorporating that in their gen ed curricula and yep. other curricula. It's becoming more important, I think. As I look at these surveys, especially when you have a sense of the time in which they've been issued and what's going on, it's always fascinating to me to see like what rises to the top, what becomes a bigger priority, you know, that sort of thing. And I think just with the navigation of information, the the synthesizing of what counts as, as truth, not truth, good data, bad data, et cetera, you know, that you have in the digital environment, you know, with our students, you know, even apart from switching to remote learning and and all the things around COVID, although we do actually, you know, certainly ask some questions that are specific to hiring practices within COVID, you know, I think that's a pretty stable growth thing that you've seen as an area of emphasis. So it's interesting how things that seem to be trends in the higher ed community are are then echoed in the hiring preferences. I'm thinking particularly of the rise in, you know, civic engagement as an important thing at kind of a similar time that higher ed is really beginning to reckon with things like anti-racist pedagogy and andragogy and and infusing those as essential parts of our curricula. So it's just it's interesting that that those trends don't exist in a, in the vacuum of higher ed. They're, they're also reflected in what employers are looking for. I, the beautiful thing about working at 
AACNU is being surrounded by amazing colleagues working in kind of adjacent complementary spaces. And so, you know, AACNU has had a long history of working on issues of diversity, equity, student success, anti-racism, both within undergraduate STEM education under the leadership of Kelly Mack, our VP for undergraduate STEM reform. And then Tia McNair, who many folks know for her work in that space on high impact practices, predating some of the immediate political things of the last two years, but certainly growing and and helping to respond to them. What I really appreciate about AAC and use work in this space is kind of the marrying of these aspects of, of quality and equity that, you know, there is not one without the other. And so, you know, even as folks sometimes think, you know, we're, we're the data people, we're the assessment people, we're, we're, we're focused on quality. Well, yes. And, and, and what does this mean for equity? What does this mean? What are we doing with the data and the evidence that we have? What are, what programming are we engaging in to help increase equity, equitable outcomes, high quality success outcomes for everyone. It's a really wonderful sandbox to play in professionally. And I always like to say, and this is um, maybe slightly of an overstatement, someone may come up with another group, but the nice thing about AACNU as a higher ed association is we're non-sector specific. So it's not that we're, you know, our membership is really united and a community based on an ideal based on this notion of liberal education and what undergraduate students have a right to expect at at any institution in which they enroll, traditional or non-traditional, public, private, two, four years. So being, being united and driven by that ideal when it comes to making quality and equity the hallmarks of excellence in undergraduate education, you know, the other part of our mission is in service to democracy. So it's not just about employability that we have great resources on that. It's not just about showing what students are doing, you know, in the moment of undergraduate education. It's that, you know, higher education has and should continue to have a role to play in in strengthening the foundation of our civic life. So, uh, So it's an exciting time to be part of the work. Absolutely. So you and David Eubanks are going to be some of our keynote speakers at our upcoming ALHE annual conference, which is in June. And your keynote is titled Clear, Simple and Wrong, How to Avoid Fooling Ourselves with Data. We don't want you to give everything away, but how do we avoid fooling ourselves with data? Oh, so a, a couple of thoughts there. And it's so funny. Dave and I got to know each other I I love telling this story. I think sometimes he's a little chagrined when I say it. You know, I'd had an op-ed in Inside Higher Ed about assessment and Dave wrote to me to tell me all the things he thought I didn't quite get right in the op-ed. You know, very friendly, very personal one-on-one note. It wasn't like fire and brimstone in the comments. There was plenty of that going on from other people. And it just started a conversation where we bandied back and forth ideas of what assessment is for, what is measurement, what is research. So all of that kind of like esoteric stuff. But then what does it mean practically for campuses and what should we be doing? And my worry for the field of assessment, and I don't think it's only my worry, it's it's a shared concern, is that when reporting accountability, just getting things done becomes the driver of activity you know, you can lose a lot of nuance. You can look at things in more simplistic ways. And I don't necessarily think this is, you know, the fault of any one individual. It's kind of a, you know, it's like the the tide is moving and you're just kind of rolling with it, whether you're preparing for accreditation or, you know, someone at the state level is asking for information. So it's, it's really remembering to be thoughtful about your analyses, 
to take multiple variables into context. You know, there's a great chapter in Tia McNair's book with some collaborators on the, the book is called From Equity Talk to Equity Walk. Chapter three in there is all about what to do with data. You know, the simple answer is, well, disaggregate it. Well, in what way? To what end? How sophisticated are you and what you're looking at? And then what questions are you coming out with? And so I think that's the theme really for Dave's presentation in mind is like, you can't just take one variable, one snapshot. He once said to me, my fear with value is that people will say value rubrics are valid. Therefore, if I use them, what I do is valid. And, and we know that that's an equation that's, you know, what I call, that's an equation that gets you dangerous data. You'll get numbers, you'll get results. And if you use those in your decision-making processes, you may be making really wrong decisions intentionally or, or totally. not. So I, I don't think I'm giving away any specifics, but that's kind of the gist behind Dave and Kate doing their roadshow. So <laughs> Dave was a guest on our podcast a little while back, and and we had a, a similarly interesting conversation. We, I thought it was fascinating. Cool. Yeah, what you said really reminds me of Goodhart's Law, which focuses on the paradox of measurement. So Goodhart's Law says when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Yeah. And for example, if like test scores are the way to measure student and teacher success, oh. then both parties will work to maximize those scores at the expense of those underlying skills, which those scores are meant to measure. So, well, and you're headed home right now. Like I just picked up my kiddo from school before turning on, you know, she's in fourth grade in the, the great Commonwealth of Virginia, where we have what are called the standards of learning, the SOLs, which is a really unfortunate acronym, especially <laughs> if, you're from, if you're from Boston, like me, it stands for something else. But you know, I, at her small but mighty school district has done a great job trying to mitigate all the COVID stuff. But let me tell you about a decision that was made for fourth grade. She came home, she got her first B on a, on a report card and was bereft, you know, and my husband and I were actually high-fiving each other going, okay, we can talk about perfectionism and, you know, grades aren't the end all be all. And we're, ha- we're going to have this great parenting moment, right? And she says to us, well, you know, I've pretty much been teaching myself science. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, can we talk to Miss, her teacher about it, who actually is a fabulous teacher? Like, this isn't about her at all. So we get on Zoom and we're talking and she's, she's saying all the right things about what happens when you get your first B and da, 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 da. And then she says to me, well, but remember, we're really not doing much direct instruction on science this year. And I said, oh, wait, what? Where, where would I have heard that? And she's like, well, it was in the parent news. I'm like, okay, okay, well, wh- why? There was a decision made in this moment of having to make things work. And I get it, that because it was not a standard tested for fourth grade, they were not going to emphasize science as a subject matter. So there were Google slides, there were YouTube videos, and I, but this is science. <laughs> You know, this is the year. So anyway, the driver of these decisions became what what are we held accountable to this year from this testing regime? And I have, you know, you can imagine my opinions on that and, and my vocabulary associated with that. And again, it's it's a systemic thing. It's not that one teacher's fault. It's I'm not necessarily saying it's the school system's fault. You know, it is what it is. The irony of all of this is six months from now, the state of Virginia might say, we're not going to count SLL scores this year because it was such a crazy year. Like, why are we even making them do this right now? Right. 
So, so that to me is the, the grand worry of all of these initiatives where it's so divorced from context and reality that, you know, you're, you're just focusing on, you're focusing on the wrong activities and not the bigger picture. So that was my exactly. little rant as a, a corollary, what we're talking about, but it's, it's been pretty salient for me. Yeah. That was perfect. Very, very similar picture in Massachusetts. I worked in K-12 assessment before I worked in higher ed assessment. And so many school districts are greatly reducing or even cutting completely their science and their social studies, um, yeah. which were once, you know, core subjects, but yeah. they're, they're not tested on the MCAS. And that's the only standard that schools are really held to. Yeah, of their 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 rankings. And I will say the only thing that was the saving grace for social studies this year, you know, my master's is in history. So I, I, I get wounded when I hear this. Right. Or the idea that you only learn writing and language arts kind of thing. Right. Like there's not this cross cutting of skills that we're talking about in Virginia. Fourth grade is Virginia history year. You know, so social studies stayed on the books. But again, if it were not the thing that were tested, you know, what would you have seen? in the mix there. So, so yeah, it's, it's, so that overall is my worry for this, this broader context of measurement assessment, what counts as quality. And it'll be interesting to see how policymakers, philanthropic organizations that push for better quality, you know, K through 16, K through 20, what, what have you, what we do in the post COVID world around these things, you know, can we have a, a broader conversation about measurement and quality and what that means? I hope so. I'm optimistic. I like to think we can, you know, always contribute to moving that needle, but it's, it's a, it's a, ta- a challenging spot for sure. It's been interesting the way that COVID has served as almost an inflection point or, or a potential for a reset or a reevaluation of our priorities. And I think it, it, it's got the possibility to be a really powerful time in a lot of movements, including in higher ed. And I'm, I am hopeful, cautiously, that some good decisions will, will be made out of it and, and, and we can envision new directions in a way that we might not have been possible before. I agree. I think fundamentally, one of the things that has been so gratifying, I think, maybe that's not the right word, or confirming in many instances, is how I saw faculty turning themselves into knots to, you know, make sure their students had the basics, never mind were, you know, getting access to class and that sort of thing. I have a good colleague who, you know, in Massachusetts was trying to figure out all the different ways for students in Worcester to get Wi-Fi. And what could they do from home and how do you help set them up and that sort of thing? You know, the the old stereotype of higher education, you know, moving at the speed of an iceberg to change, you know, I think we saw that go by the wayside. The, the sheer importance, the, the integral amount of work and effort that Centers for Teaching and Learning, Educational Technology Centers, and what they actually contribute to a campus I mean, I'll be honest, pre-COVID, if you're looking at budget cuts, those were always the offices that were seen as like the nice to have, or, you know, maybe it's extra, we can cut some things there. So my, my big ambition or hope, wish is that this, out of this is a recentering on teaching, regardless of institutional type. And the idea of caring for the whole student, right? I mean, definitely making sure that it's not just about the grade in your class, but, you know, that notion of, you know, it, these are, these are humans and people that we're 
were, were helping achieve their academic aspirations. Now here's a tough question. Sure. So what have you been doing for self-care these days, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So the flippant answer is caffeine and then red wine at night. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no judgment here. <laughs> uh, nothing unhealthy. I, I will say I'm very, very lucky, very blessed to live in a gorgeous part of the country I'm not known as an outdoors woman. You know, my family laughs. I'm not a camper. I'm not that. But, you know, being here in the Blue Ridge in Virginia, um, in Appalachia, the 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 the, be- the natural beauty and being able to get out and about in that has been restorative. I will say not traveling was something I had to get used to, given the amount of travel most of us for AAC and you engage in regularly. So being home and just trying to figure out how to be more present in that space with family, um, but then just some good books actually, and good, good podcasts, my favorite podcast right now. And this is something that goes back to my, my love of history and uh, just friends, a dear friend of mine, his partner is uh, one of the creators of a podcast called the Bowery Boys. And it's a podcast all about New York City. So it's like New York history. I mean, I'm going to sound like such a geek. My favorite yeah. episode is their episode on DeWitt Clinton, a revolutionary, you know, early governor <laughs> of, of New York. But then they also do things on like movies about New York. And, you know, they, they talk about the different neighborhoods and that sort of thing. So I've gotten into that as well. And really, honestly, looking for, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm fully vaccinated, looking forward to doing really simple things like going out to, you know, sit at a restaurant inside. Yeah. So, so we have that on the, on the horizon, so to speak. How about awesome. you? What have you guys been doing? I've been doing a lot. So you've been hearing my dog in the background. Yes. So my wife and I have been fostering dogs since COVID started. So this is our 12th or 13th dog, but we're going to keep this dog. Uh-oh, um, a foster a, fail. It's a fo- <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I was like, at first I called it a foster fail, but I'm like, wait, are we really failing? Mm, I don't think so. So we got this cool dog. He's part two, he's two dogs that I never really wanted. So I think the universe is like, here's this dog that of two of, made of two dogs you never thought you wanted. So it's, it's a chug. It's part, it's a part pug and part chihuahua. <laughs> I love it. So, um, yeah, so we, we just adopted him and he is really cute. And basically it's been, it's been a good, good self-care. He's cuddly and that's, Aww. that's been good. Other than that, I'm getting ready to start my garden. So oh, that's something nice. I'm excited about. And I find that to be really meditative. I think in, in our last episode or a couple episodes ago, I talked about how I like raking leaves for self-care and that's really nerdy, but it's, it's true. So now I'm going to start a garden and that's going to be, that's going to be my self-care for a little bit. And I probably need to do more. I love it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And I've, my resolution is to get back into being more active. So we were one of those stereotypes of people who ordered a Peloton. So I'm not quite in the Peloton cult yet. I don't have my favorite person yet, or, you know, I'm not on the leaderboard or or doing any of the themed rides, but like, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. So that's, that's the other thing is just kind of getting, getting your headspace back and your, your, your sense of self in this very weird year. I mean, I, again, I feel lucky, you know, organizationally, we've had just great kind of human support. I think we're, we're a good community in our organization. And again, 
working with people across all of the, the different groups in higher education that we connect with on a regular basis who are just doing good work and getting things done in spite of, and in spite of a lot. So that alone is just really, really wonderful to, to see and be able to like, just appreciate, you know, good people trying to do good stuff in really hard times. So Thanks. Great answer. So I, we were just discussing right before we came uh, on the recording that today is my immunity day from yeah. uh, the COVID vaccine. So and and then in addition to that, I, I had a minor break of my foot, just got the cast off. So it, it's just all kinds of freedom. I can drive again. I can be with a lot more people, you know, one at a time. Um, yeah, yeah. This weekend, I'm going to a drive-in movie with a friend, and it's been a year since I've done something like that, gone out with a friend to do something social. And as an extrovert, I'm just, I'm very much looking forward to it. It, it should be restorative in a number of ways. Oh, that's awesome. I will tell you, I'm still in a boot. I have a stress fracture in my right foot and people are like, how'd you get it? I'm like, I don't, I don't actually know. It just <laughs> happened. It started hurting. It might've been this, it might've been that. That's what I was like, oh, don't turn 40. That's when like you injure yourself and you can't explain how there's no good story, right? Like it used to be, you would do something. There'd be this good story of an adventure. I was hiking or I was jumping out of a plane. And my story now is, is I don't know. I'm just, yes. you know, it I, just happened. I up wrong. And exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's also my right foot, so I, I couldn't drive with the boot on, but now I can. So. Good, good. That's my, uh, my self-care. All right. So our last question that we like to ask all our guests, what is your favorite thing that you're working on right now? Oh, hmm. Favorite thing. Again, that's kind of like choosing. So, okay. So I'll say there's two. There's one that's kind of a continuing project and then there's one that's new. So pivoting to doing something slightly different. Um, the continuing project, the thing that I'm most excited about that I'm working on is pulling together what we're calling the emerging land, the inaugural emerging landscape of learning report, where, you know, we have this database through our scoring initiative, um, beginning in the 2014, 2015 academic year with some of our, uh, proof of concept grant funded groups through what used to be called the multi-state collaborative through the schools who send us their work now through the fee for service model to look at patterns of learning across this student work in ways that we never could before. So we have a database um, from the first five years of this initiative alone with 55,000 pieces of scored student work using, you know, the, the usual suspect rubrics like critical thinking, written communication, quantitative literacy, and then even um, smaller ends, but still robust when it comes to things like global learning and intercultural knowledge and competence. And it's just the gift that keeps on giving. So part of it is trying to figure out what to highlight in that first kind of overview to share with folks and then what to do some deeper dives on later on. Um, and it's it's just exciting. We're starting to see things as kind of a teaser that, you know, again, you know, all caveats for limitations and what you can and can't generalize about, et cetera, et cetera. But there's some cool stuff in there, um, particularly with an eye towards um, equity, where we might be challenging or poking at some of the truisms that we think about who is and who isn't performing or who is and who isn't prepared for college. Just again, based on what we're seeing in here, some interesting patterns to interrogate. So that's one project. And then the second project 
We've received some funding that we're going to announce officially, you know, with a with a good um, press release and all of that good stuff. Uh, but looking at combining faculty development around integrative learning and OER resources, you know, when you think of and you'll be interested, I'm going to put this plug out there, is it will focus on institutions from the sixth state region of New England. You know, the funder that we're working with is, is New England focused. Um Really to help faculty, you know, we often say, oh, we're going to do things in an interdisciplinary way. We're going to promote integrative learning. So we create structures on paper that look like they do it. But when the rubber meets the road in the classroom, faculty sometimes struggle with assignment design or what resources to pull in and how to navigate it or just the costs. You know, you want to do all these extra things with your students and they're just trying to like, how do I just pay for my chemistry book, right? We're we're pulling things into the mix. We'll have more out about that in the next, I'd say, two weeks or so. Stay tuned. But I'm really excited because integrative learning, as far as I'm concerned, for undergraduate education is a, a seminal learning outcome. You know, I think it's something I started to do as an undergraduate on my own without coaching, but really, you know, later on in my master's and stuff, looking back was like, oh, I'm making all these connections. And I think there's ways of um, uh, catalyzing that for students with some guidance and with faculty. So so that's a project that I'm excited to to gear up for uh, and to learn new areas. So, you know, I'm not the OER expert in our office. There's, you know, other colleagues of mine, but I think we're going to be you know, collaborating and merging some of those pieces in really cool ways. So that's that's the other project I'm really excited to dig my teeth into. Well, that's great. Thank you for joining us today, Kate. Yeah, thank you. And and lastly, thanks to Terry. Terry has okay. been a volunteer for at least our conference committee. So super big thanks to him if he's listening, which hopefully he is. And congratulations to you on your new role. We're super excited for you. It's super exciting also to hear about these new initiatives that AACNU is working on. So thank you for your good work. Oh, thank you. I mean, it definitely takes, you know, to use the really trite phrase, it takes a village and, you know, the the, the joy of the work actually comes in from connecting the dots with people back on campuses. And that's where I've missed that the most, that kind of generative, I'm on your campus, I'm at your conference, I'm in your space, let me learn from you. And you all have done a really good job of keeping that going over the course of COVID. So, you know, I, I admire and appreciate what you've done individually, organizationally. So it was exciting and, and very flattering to be asked to be here. So thank you very much for including me. Absolutely. And we will see you again in June at our conference. I know. So cool. I'll see you both there. All right. Thank you, Kate. Thanks. We'll be doing our upcoming event segment a little differently this time. We're going to focus on the sessions from the ALHE conference presented by former Assessment Works guests. And a couple upcoming guests. Speaking of which, our first keynote is going to be given by Jane Marie Souza and Tara Rose, who will be our guests on the next episode. They're giving the first keynote, which is Exemplars of Assessment in Higher Education, Diverse Approaches to Addressing Accreditation Standards. This is based on a book that they just released, which they edited. And we'll be talking a lot about the book with them on our next episode, but all conference attendees are getting a free copy of the book and Jane Marie and Tara are donating the proceeds back to ALHE. So looking forward to learning more about that. Nice. Another one, David Eubanks, a former board member and just a really interesting colleague, in my opinion. 
he'll be presenting the case for Grades Enigma, which will be an on-demand live chat on Monday, June 7th at 6 p.m. Central Time. It's for an intermediate level assessment practitioners. David Eubanks and Kate McConnell, who have both been guests on the podcast, are giving the next keynote, which is called Clear, Simple, and Wrong, on June 9th at 1.30 p.m. Central. Nice. Natasha Jankowski and Janina Baker will be presenting a presentation called Making Sense of It All, The Many Roles of Evidence-Based Storytelling. It's a live concurrent session, be about 45 minutes long, on June 9th from 2.45 p.m. Central to 3.30. Kate McConnell, our most recent guest, our, our guest from this episode, will be delivering measuring the quality of doctoral learning through a crowdsourced dissertation rubric exemplar with a bunch of colleagues, Heather D. Hussey and Tara Layen. This is an on-demand session, so it'll be available all the way through until July, but there'll be a live chat about the session Wednesday, June 9th at 6 p.m. Central. Conversations with the creditors panel discussion, which is something that we've done for the past few years. It's been very popular. It's also been very useful to people. That's going to be on June 10th from 12 p.m. to 1.15, and that will include uh, Jane Marie Souza, past president, Stephen Hawks, ALE chief board member, Leah Matthews, Stephen Pugolesi, and David Chase. Emily Klukas-Liederman and Gina Polykarnopoulos, who were in our last episode, are going to be presenting on the Rare Model, which we talked about them with along with their colleague, Carrie Goschenauer. So they'll be talking about the RARE model, the collaborative residence for multidisciplinary and group settings as a live concurrent session on June 10th at 2.45 p.m. Central. And then another one on June 10th from 4 p.m. to 4.45, putting students first, lessons learned from student-focused assessment. And that will be featuring Janina Baker and Natasha Jankowski. Tara Rose, who will be our guest on the next podcast, will be delivering with Terry Flateby, Guiding College to Career Success, which is, will be a concurrent session June 11th at 12.15 p.m. Central. And then another popular session, Grand Challenges in Assessment, will be a panel discussion featuring Jane Marie Souza, past president, Karen Singer-Freeman, Christine Robinson, Carly Deer, Meredith Garcia, Justin Hosha, Aaron Isaacson, Sharon Milligan, Jessica Taylor, and Mel Williams. There's still time to register for the conference if any of these sessions sound intriguing to you, but you have to hurry. Visit alhe.org for registration and more information. The on-demand sessions in the social platform for the conference will remain live for attendees until July 1st, so there's plenty of time to learn and network. We hope to see you there. That's all for this episode of Assessment Works. Bye now.